0: The rate of drug overdose deaths in rural areas of Idaho have surpassed urban areas based on their population size.
1: The limiting factor in injection drug use is the availability of heroin and not the availability of a clean needle. If
0: we deny that there's any benefit to substance use or that there's any reason why they should be doing it, then we really aren't meeting our participants or our patients uh, where they're at.
2: When it comes to providers especially, you have the heartstring folks and you have the data folks. And if you're not hitting on both of those, you're going to lose half.
3: Welcome back. This is something for the pain podcast, produced by Project Echo in Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to learn best practices in the fight to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders in communities across the state of Idaho. I'm your host, Sam the well, E
4: stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. C H is for community health care, the welfare you and me. The story we can tell E-C-H-O all together well, you know that Echo, I know.
3: On our last episode
5: is that there are a lot of people who could use some help, but they're afraid to reach out because somebody will find out they're ashamed of what this substance is doing to them and to their lives.
3: We heard from Monica Forbes, CEO of Recovery United and founder of the Peer Wellness Center in Boise and The Rock in McCall. Monica, join me to talk about peer recovery coaching and some resources available to people who may be facing re-entry following a period of incarceration. But
5: if anyone were to find out, it's going to impact their social standing in the community and in a small town, let's get real, most everyone, if you were to bring that out into the open, it can affect so many things.
3: On today's episode, episode 8, we're going to be hearing a lecture from Marjorie Wilson, LMSW, MPH, and Executive Director of Idaho's Harm Reduction Project. Marjorie's going to be educating us on Idaho's syringe service programs and sharing some evidence-based data to help dispel some of the myths and stigmas surrounding syringe service programs. She's also going to be telling us about some of the education initiatives her organization is responsible for implementing in Idaho. But before we get to that, we're going to be hearing from Ian Tresoyer, nurse practitioner formerly of Southeastern Idaho Public Health, who currently works at Bear Lake Community Health Center. Ian joined Echo Idaho's Opioid Addiction and Treatment Series back in 2019, right around the time that the Idaho State Legislature made syringe service programs possible in Idaho. Ian shared some information about their efficacy as well as the findings of a research project he completed as a part of his Doctor of Nursing Practice program. That's coming up on today's episode of Something for the Pain.
4: Echo Idaho Sign up for our free sessions There's a handful every month Echo Idaho You can earn CE credit
3: Without further ado, here's Ian Trisoyer of Bear Lake Community Health Center.
1: Um, So my name is Ian Trisoyer. I just completed a Doctor of nursing practice program. I did my doctoral project on a stakeholder analysis of syringe exchange in Idaho, and it just kind of serendipitously happened that we had a syringe exchange law pass um, this most recent legislative session. A reminder here
3: that this presentation was given in May of 2019, so the session Ian's referring to is no
1: longer the most recent. So just kind of brief background, what is syringe exchange or syringe access? It's basically providing needles and syringes to injection drug users to reduce their risk of sharing needles or doing other high-risk activities needles, reusing them, that might promote the spread of hepatitis C or HIV. So as I mentioned, I have some background in um, infectious disease epidemiology for southeastern public health. And this is statewide trend incidence for hepatitis C, the years 2012 and 2016. And the the thing, you know, so we talk about hepatitis C with baby boomers all the time. But the thing that's more Concerning is just pretty recently we've seen a pretty strong signal for um, an increase in hepatitis C cases in people younger than 30. The increase in age adjusted detection rate of chronic hepatitis C among people younger than 30 um, by county. So, you know, this isn't in true infection rate. It's detection rate, so it's affected by whether you know how frequently providers are testing for hepatitis C. But it is, I think, it's still concerning. So in Ada County, there was a 265 percent increase in the detection rate, annual detection rate of hepatitis C, in these four years. And then in Bannock County, where I'm from, um, there was an over 1,000 percent increase in those four years in annual detection rate and you know even though certainly some of that is just providers testing more I think that signal makes good sense that there's a real increase in the infection rate in younger people and we know that most of that is going to be due to injection drug use hepatitis C as you guys know is it's expensive to treat and uh, and HIV is also of course a problem with sharing needles it causes significant morbidity it can cause mortality and it, again it's very expensive to treat it's a huge burden on on the health system if we have a lot of extra hepatitis C and HIV cases. So, one of the key takeaways that I want you guys to think about is there's great evidence behind syringe exchange that institutional level syringe access can reduce the spread of HIV and hepatitis C co infection by 40%, 43% reductions in HIV prevalence, and 30% reductions in hepatitis C prevalence. And the CDC recommends it as a, an effective and cost saving measure uh, to reduce the spread of hepatitis C and HIV. And just recently, this legislative session, we passed a Syringe Exchange Act in Idaho. It's based on Utah's legislation, but the gist of it is that the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare will basically pass some rules at this next rules hearing, and they, they'll basically regulate syringe exchange. You have to sign up with IDHW to um, establish your practice as a syringe exchange site. According to the law, you have to keep track of how many syringes you give, how many syringes you receive. The law, as it's written, is you can only provide one syringe for a return syringe. So if someone returns 40, you can give them 40, but you can't give them 41. And um, the evidence really indicates that that is not the most effective method to expand syringe access, but it's the way that we've expanded it here. And, of course, there's room for expanding future legislation later on.
4: What are the logistics? I mean, how do people, I mean, where do they go for this
1: to, to, to do
3: the exchange? This is Dr. Todd Palmer speaking. Dr. Palmer is the Addiction Fellowship Director at the Family Medicine Residency of Idaho in Boise. He's also one of our long-standing experts on our Opioids, Pain, and Substance Use Disorders Series Specialist Panel, as well as one of Echo Idaho's ex-waiver trainers.
1: Yeah so I was also asked by the Idaho harm reduction project um, to serve as a board member and they so the Idaho harm reduction project is they're located in Boise but they're hoping to have a statewide uh, syringe exchange network basically and currently syringe exchange uh, there are no syringe exchange sites in Idaho yet the the legislation just passed you know in late March and now the next step is for IDHW to pass these rules. And they, um, they sought feedback from law enforcement and public health and providers. And they're now going to try to pass those rules through the legislature. And then what will happen is places that are interested in having syringe exchange or providing syringe exchange will basically be required to send IDHW um, like a brief plan kind of saying what they hope to do with syringe exchange. They're also required to send a notice to like local law enforcement and other stakeholders, just to let them know, hey, we are going to start providing syringe exchange in our in our area. So that if someone has a concern or has a specific, well, specific problem that they need to raise with the operators of the exchange, they know how to get a hold of them. But they can't—they can't outright prevent a syringe exchange from happening just because, like, local law enforcement is concerned or opposed, for instance. For my project, I—I spoke to um, stakeholders in prosecution and law enforcement, and, uh, a ton of different people, and. None of the people that I spoke with knew that Syringe Exchange was going to pass this session until I until I interviewed them about it. It kind of came out of nowhere for everybody. And I happened to find out about it just kind of by random chance. I sent an email to the committee chair for House Health and Welfare and said, hey, I'm interested in talking about Syringe Exchange. And he said, oh, you should talk to Representative Blanks and I support her legislation. And I had no idea that that any legislation was planning on coming forward and and neither did the stakeholders that I talked to. So there's a good chance that in some jurisdictions, there's probably going to be some pushback and there's probably going to be some significant concerns just because a lot of people don't know, you know, the evidence behind syringe exchange or they might kind of think, oh, well, you know, in Utah, for instance, they had um, some people pretty vocally coming out against syringe exchange and saying, hey, you're giving people injection drug use starter kits. Um, but the, there's strong evidence to indicate that that's not the case, that injection, that providing syringe exchange or syringe access does not increase injection drug use. You know, the limiting factor in injection drug use is the availability of heroin and not the availability of a clean needle. People can reuse their old ones. But you know, I think in Idaho, we probably need to be prepared for, um, for some pushback, um, at least initially, once people acclimate to the idea of having syringe exchange here.
3: That was a presentation by Ian Tresoyer on the stakeholder analysis of Syringe Exchange. That presentation was recorded live during an ECHO session that took place on May 23, 2019, as a part of ECHO Idaho's Opioid Addiction and Treatment Series. Since the time of that presentation, syringe service programs, or SSPs, have begun to appear all across the state of Idaho. For an update on where Idaho stands now in terms of what programs are available and how they function, I'm going to transition to a more recent lecture that was presented on this very subject by Marjorie Wilson, Executive Director of the Idaho Harm Reduction Project. Here's Marjorie presenting a lecture she gave on June 10, 2021, as a part of Echo Idaho's Opioids, Pain, and Substance Use Disorder series.
0: My name is Marjorie Wilson. I'm one of the co-founders, and I'm the director of Idaho Harm Reduction Project. All right, so today we're going to talk about what harm reduction looks like, and you're going to be able to identify harm reduction as it pertains uh, to risky behavior. Um, And then we're going to reframe substance use disorder from a harm reduction model. And then finally, you'll be able to leave here um, talking about the benefits of syringe service programs also known as needle exchanges, um, to an individual and to a community. All right. So what is harm reduction and what are some examples? And this is as it pertains to any behavior, um, not just substance use. Harm reduction is um, when we wanna take, we wanna do certain activities that have some risk to them, like driving a car, spending time in the sun, uh, going to a grocery store in a pandemic. And there are steps that you can take to mitigate the risks associated with these activities. Um, So wearing a seatbelt, applying sunscreen, uh, or wearing a mask. Um, But there is still some risk associated with that behavior, right? We don't uh, assume that taking these precautions eliminates all risk. So when harm reduction is applied to substance use, the principle is really the same. Um, So for alcohol use, you would use a designated
3: driver. For opioid use, there's naloxone, uh, MAT. MAT here, or M-A-T, stands for Medication for Addiction Treatment and
0: then supervised or safer consumption spaces where people can safely inject substances um, and not do it in a uh, public bathroom or uh, any other dangerous place where they're not supervised. Um, so, we're here to talk about harm reduction as it pertains to substance use disorder. Um, and if you think of a substance use along a continuum, there's a lot of folks who are at one end who have never used a substance, they're abstinent or in recovery. Um, and then there's everything else along that continuum. So, uh, another group exercise think about all the people who you know who have never used a single substance. How many can you count? Maybe a couple on one hand, maybe two hands. Personally, I can't think of very many people in my life who have never used a substance. Some of them are in a recovery, maybe, but most of the people I know have some relationship with uh, a substance. So think about all the people that you know have used substances maybe have an issue or a dependency on a substance um, or are now in treatment or sober. Um, Are there people that you know who have had no problem quitting, some that have had trouble quitting? Um, I suspect that you know probably more people along the spectrum than just at that one end. Um, A lot of people fall into that larger category. And harm reduction is a philosophy and an intervention that can happen all along that continuum. So like I was saying, for example, a designated driver um, filters on cigarettes and you can change the consumption method. So it's safer to eat a substance than it is to smoke it, but it's also safer to smoke it than it is to inject it. So these are all ways that we can incorporate harm reduction into substance use. Harm reduction also recognizes that drug use has been and will continue to be a part of our world, and we choose to minimize the negative impacts that it has on uh, a population, individuals, communities, um, rather than ignore or condemn that behavior. So harm reduction also does not deny that there are negative impacts or glorify uh, substance use, but we recognize that our participants... Um, or our patients do get some benefit from their substance use, right? People don't use them for no reason. There's, there's reasons of social engagement with others, or it makes them feel good. Uh, it numbs the pain that they're feeling either physically or psychologically. And if we deny that there's any benefit to substance use or that there's any, there's no reason why they should be doing it, then we really aren't meeting our participants or our patients uh, where they're at, which is what harm reduction is all about. So one way of um, applying harm reduction to substance use, specifically in injection drug use, is with a syringe service program or a needle exchange program. Um, The term is kind of used interchangeably, but I'll go into why we prefer to use the term, say, for a syringe or a syringe service program versus needle exchange. It's essentially the same thing. However, needle exchange means or would imply that there's a one-for-one exchange and we encourage our participants to take as much as they need. Um, There's nothing indicating that One for one exchange reduces uh, syringe litter in the community. However, it does lead to reusing of syringes. And so we
3: encourage people to take as much as they need to deter any reuse. And when you say needs based, this is Echo Idaho Program Director Lachelle Smith speaking here. LaShelle often acts as moderator between Echo session participants, panelists, and presenters.
0: When you say needs-based, you mean not mm-hmm. money, but people who need the things you have. Yes. So needs-based, meaning you're telling me that you are collecting um, on behalf of 10 people. I'm going to give you enough um, supplies for 10 people. There there are organizations that do limit it, and there are whole states that mandate that there must be a one-for-one exchange, and we recognize that that's not best practice, um, and that... Um, People know what they need, and we need to honor that and uh, give them what they're asking for. So, syringe service programs or SSPs uh, are just one way of addressing the negative impacts of substance use. Uh, They address these health impacts by providing safer injection equipment to people who are injecting drugs. Uh, But we provide much more than just syringes. When someone's injecting drugs, they use cookers, they use cottons, they use um, other tools uh, to inject. And these are all um, ways that HIV or hepatitis C can be spread. So it's important to supply all the supplies, not just the needle. Because reusing or resharing these supplies could potentially cause damage to themselves or to others. So some of the other negative impacts could be an abscess or a missed shot, damage to veins, endocarditis, just to name a few. But when I talk about my program, Idaho Harm Reduction Program, I like to say that we're a drug user health program because we do much more than just a safer syringe program. We do offer HIV and hepatitis C testing uh, and referral to providers that we know that are going to treat our participants with kindness and compassion. Uh, We also offer sexual and reproductive health services, condoms, lube, pregnancy tests, menstrual hygiene supplies. We also offer fentanyl test strips. Um, And so these are an important harm reduction tool in addition to Narcan or Naloxone because people can test the substance that they are going to use. And it will at least indicate whether or not fentanyl is present in that substance. They are uh, originally intended for like a urine analysis. Um, However, they can also be used to test the substance that that person is going to inject. And so they mix it up uh, with water. Test the substance it's reverse of like a pregnancy test so i have to point that out to people that the the results with two lines would be negative one line is positive um and unfortunately it doesn't tell you is it like 90 percent fentanyl or is it one percent so it doesn't tell you that but it does say it is present in the substance so use at your own risk make sure you have narcan make sure you're not using alone take the precautions do a test shot instead of doing the whole thing at once um And also, we encourage people to test as much of the substance as they can because fentanyl can be in like one teeny tiny part and not in the rest of it. Um, And so it's not uniform throughout. And it's important for us to provide these to all of our participants, Uh, even if they think they're using a non-opioid. We know that fentanyl can be found in a lot of different things. And so we encourage uh, everybody to take these with them. Uh, Again, overdose prevention is a big part of what we do. Uh, We distribute Narcan and Naloxone not only into the hands of people who use drugs, but to the people that love them and the providers and agencies that um, provide services to them. As of this year, we've already had over 100 overdose reversals reported back to us through the um, Naloxone and Narcan that we've distributed directly to our participants. So does harm reduction work? Yes, it absolutely works. Syringe services work. They may be new to Idaho, but they have existed around the world for decades. And because they're seen as potentially controversial, uh, they've also been heavily researched and evaluated to demonstrate their efficacy. Not only do communities with syringe service programs see a reduction in the incidence of HIV and hepatitis C, uh, but they also see a reduction in overdose rates, and participants are more likely to enter treatment or stop injecting altogether if they are accessing a syringe service program. As evidence a harm reduction saves lives, like I said, uh, we collect data on how often our naloxone is used to reverse an overdose. We've saved nearly 150 lives at this point uh, since the beginning of the year. There are a lot of myths around syringe service programs, and so I don't want to spend too much time on them because the evidence really doesn't support their claims. Um, But research has shown that syringe service programs do not increase criminal activity in an area, and they do not increase syringe litter. We are a needs-based program, which means we encourage our participants to take as much uh, of our supplies as they need for themselves and for the folks that they're using with. Um, We often hear that our participants are collecting on behalf of five, 10, 15, Up to upwards of 20 people um, that may not want to or feel comfortable accessing our program, which makes a lot of sense, because while we are protected as syringe service providers, once we distribute these supplies, it becomes paraphernalia and the paraphernalia law applies. So. That's unfortunate, and yet we still see that our participants um, are referring their friends and family. They're trying to do the right thing by using sterile injection equipment um, and carrying Narcan and Naloxone. We do take disposal very seriously. So we've installed a sharps disposal container down in downtown Boise. We offer disposal here in the office, and then we also encourage our participants to dispose of their sharps safely using the sharps containers that we offer. Um, Most months, we're distributing enough sharps containers uh, with capacity to exceed the number of syringes that we were actually distributing that month. Um, so I was also also speak a little bit about how syringe service programs became legal in Idaho. Um, and really, it was not for the benefit of people who use drugs. It was to uh, promote safe sharps disposal. The local garbage company had workers that were getting stuck with inappropriately disposed of sharps in the solid waste system, and they lobbied and were able to successfully get syringe service programs uh, legalized in Idaho in 2019. So we've had legal syringe service programs for about two years now, and we're very grateful for that. There are states that have operated syringe service programs for many years longer than Idaho and have been struggling and trying to get syringe services legalized uh, for a long time. And so we were very lucky. We had a few underground programs that were operating before legalization, but since then, now we have four legal syringe services uh, registered with the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare. However, like I said, the paraphernalia laws still apply. And so the supplies that we distribute, um, unfortunately, can get our participants in trouble. So that's why we offer the sharps containers, because we recognize that it's safer for them to take the sharps and dispose of them in their own personal garbage, um, which is legal to do in Idaho. Um, and we encourage them to do that instead of transporting used syringes, which could potentially get them in trouble. So, Idaho Harm Reduction Project is based here in Boise. Um, we have an office here on the bench where folks can stop in, pick up supplies, get some HIV and hep C testing. Um, and we're happy to have visitors. So if any of you would like to come in and see what a syringe service program looks like, we're happy to have you. Um, we also offer delivery within the Treasure Valley, and this is really how we got started. So this time last year, we didn't even have an office. Uh, we had been operating just out of uh, in my living room and garage and doing local d- uh, deliveries to folks that have reached out to us through our website or uh, text or call us. Um, since the pandemic, we uh, have transitioned to mailing supplies as well. And so we've grown to serve the entire state of Idaho, not just the Treasure Valley. Um, we've sent supplies everywhere in the state from Boundary County to Bonneville, and we've served over 60% of Idaho's counties. So while Ada County is still the county that receives the most of our supplies, um, the top counties that we serve outside of Ada County are Bannock, Canyon, Bonneville, and Shoshone, a uh, teeny tiny county up north that um, has a lot of people that need our services. Um, we're also happy to partner with NIAC, North Idaho AIDS Coalition. They are now fulfilling the orders for um, our participants in Northern Idaho. So it's been mutually beneficial. We can refer to the folks up there because it will get to them faster via the mail. It will also connect those folks to HIV and Hep C testing. Um, So we're really happy to partner with them. Uh, The other service we offer is outreach and events. So we have a van that we are looking forward to using this summer. Um, So if you're interested in having us come um, park in your parking lot, we can do HIV and Hep C testing, do some uh, needle exchange if you'd like, um, we'd be happy to do that. So Idaho Harm Reduction Project is just one of four registered syringe services in the state. Um, There are three here in Boise and then, like I said, our friends up north in Coeur d'Alene. They've also expanded to do some work in Latok County. Um, We also work with the Department of Health and Welfare and a syringe service program in Missoula, Montana called Open Aid Alliance to provide capacity building and technical assistance to any organization that's interested in providing syringe services to their participants or patients, or if they just want to incorporate more harm reduction based practices into their work. So uh, I think the key points and takeaway that I want you guys to have um, is a drug Drug use exists on a continuum and that there's a lot of reasons why people who use drugs. And we have to recognize what those are uh, if we want to have those conversations and um, do the work to uh, reduce harms associated with um, injection drug use. And harm reduction absolutely saves lives uh, when applied to most behaviors, but especially when applied to substance use. Great. So if I have a patient that's a private insurance or not on Medicaid, your services would still be free and available to them as well. I mean, we have distributed to people living in very nice houses in West Boise. We've distributed to people living in um, trailers in Garden City. We've distributed to people experiencing homelessness. There's no means testing that we do for our participants. So if if they need it, we give it to them. Marjorie, do you intend, if someone requested your van outside of Ada County, will it drive that far? Yeah, I think we could, we can definitely look into what that looks like if it's, uh, you know, Valley County, uh, we could partner with organizations that are already operating there. We really do want to partner with organizations that are already on the ground and and know the population better than we do. Harm reduction is all about um, by the people for the people. And, you know, as someone who's not someone who's ever injected drugs, I have some concerns about me being the one deciding it. But I really do want to hear from our participants, like, where are we needed? Um, Or from providers that are working intimately with um, drug using populations in those communities and telling us where, where we can park and have the greatest impact.
3: Do you, um, do you interface with any
4: of the emergency
3: rooms or clinics? Speaking here again is Dr. Todd Palmer.
4: You, you know, where they're seeing maybe patients come in with abscesses or cellulitis from, from injecting. I mean, as far as I know, those patients aren't, they're not given a supply of syringes or needles.
0: We do. We have worked with some uh, providers that are interested in um, offering what we call weekend kits. So it's like the sharps container, a couple of bags of syringes, the cookers, cottons, ties and wipes, Narcan, sterile water, so that they can provide just a little Like get through the next couple of days and inject more safely uh, and then refer to us. So that's something that we've started to do and we'd love to do more of. So with our naloxone distribution program, we've sent to a lot of EMS um, and ambulance services um, and we're looking into what it would look like to do a naloxone leave behind program. So if they're responding to an overdose, they can administer it and then also if that makes sense to do so, leave behind a dose or two of naloxone um, for the other folks that are at that location. Even if they're not someone who uses drugs or has a prescription, like anyone can be a responder to an overdose. Right. Right. Um, So we encourage everyone to have Narcan on them. Camille, do you want to remind us who and where you are and get your question asked? Yes, thank you. I'm Camille Evans. I am here in Emmett, and I'm the behavioral health consultant and social worker for the clinic and hospital. And so I've I've been working on trying to have naloxone at our clinic, at the ER. One of the barriers that I've come up against is um, in working with like our pharmacist in mm-hmm. just how do you... How do you make sure that, like, we are following our rules? If any other critical access hospitals or clinics are doing this, I'd love to hear kind of how you are
5: doing it and making sure that there's no regulations or rules that you're breaking. You know, my understanding
0: is...
3: Speaking here is Randy Petterson, Program Manager at the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare.
0: Idaho... Um, Board of Pharmacy recently amended the naloxone access law here in the last year um, through the legislature, really kind of making it a little bit more explicit that individuals and organizations can obtain naloxone from a, a licensed provider. It doesn't have to be through a explicit prescription. And organizations can not only obtain naloxone, but they can also
6: um, give it to individuals in the community who are at risk. Um, so we have a, a pretty open naloxone act access law in
5: Idaho, which is pretty amazing. But I'll
3: stop there and shoot it over to Kathy. This is ISU College of Pharmacy Chair Kathy Oliphant. Kathy is also one of the standing panelists on our Opioids, Pain, and Substance Use Disorder series.
6: I mean, any licensed professional in Idaho can dispense um, and prescribe naloxone. So I, I guess I'm not really sure of what the barrier is there either, unless it's administration or something doesn't want to do that.
5: I um, would just like to comment on Camille's uh, question.
3: Speaking here is an ECHO participant, Megan Gomeza.
5: And this is coming from some work that I did in Oregon regarding um, implementing naloxone um, uh, to- distribution in um, community mental health programs, recovery programs, hospitals, and primary care offices. And I think um, it's a there's a barrier there. And one of those barriers is that Um, Each one of those agencies does need to create its own policy, which interweaves its sample um, dispensing um, protocols as well. And it's a a barrier that we're running into with our clinics. Um, I think there's uh, I know it's it's tedious work, but putting some efforts towards building a sample clinic policy as well as um, some procedural uh, support for these small rural providers is going to be critical.
0: Thanks
5: for noting that, Megan.
7: I was just going to also sort of piggyback on this question about some of the
3: challenges within agencies. Speaking here is Rachel Bazette. Rachel is the Sexual and Reproductive Health Program Manager for the Idaho Harm Reduction Project.
7: I've worked for and with organizations that have had a lot of hesitation about having um, Narcan or Naloxone available Um, not for distribution to clients or participants, but just for having on hand for staff. And I think that probably most of the folks on this call have some connection to working with people who are using drugs. But I think outside of that world, um, if it's not a population that people are passionate about working with, um, there's just quite a lot of bias against folks that are using drugs. And I think that there's also a lot of concerns that folks have about liability and preferring not to have Narcan or Naloxone on hand, um, because that prevents some of the liability of if someone overdoses and they have Naloxone and they don't use it or it's not administered appropriately, um, what that liability looks like. Um, And I don't think that those are good reasons not to have it and not to be doing it. But I think that's the reality that a lot of sort of like clinics and agencies are working within.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. I was going to say that we have participants that we connect with healthcare services, right? They reach out to us and they're saying, Oh, I have this abscess. Should I go in? Or, Oh, I think I have hep C. This is like before we were doing testing. Um, We could refer to providers that we know are supportive of harm reduction and that we know are going to be compassionate towards our participants uh, because that's, not uh, standard, really. Um, so we, we refer to specific providers that we know are going to treat our participants with kindness and compassion, and our, and our participants trust us to do so. So I think that's one of the main selling points of harm reduction is that, like you were saying, we, we are connecting people to care that they would otherwise not want to access because they've had such negative in, uh, interactions in emergency rooms or with doctors or wherever. Um, but they do feel safe coming here. They do feel safe asking for our opinion on
3: who they should see.
2: Lataw Recovery Center. When well, We brought harm reduction to Lataw County.
3: This is an echo participant speaking, Amber Peace of the Lataw Recovery Center in Moscow, Idaho.
2: We we got some wonderful wonderful blowback in the press about it, um, and so one of the things that we discovered worked really really well is I took the heartstrings side, Sean took the technical data side, and we presented both um, to the general public. And we we recently went and did the same thing at Alliance Club. Uh, meeting and so by having both sides of that as well as having information um, about harm reduction and about ssp we have probably what six different pamphlets now Mm -hmm. um, that really go into the the wonderful things about having harm reduction by doing it that way we have seen an overwhelming flip in our community from people who were hesitant or didn't want anything to do with harm reduction to a huge outpouring of businesses and providers calling, asking for more information. How can they help? What can they do to get naloxone in, in their clinics? Um, and we sent them to Marjorie or NIAC. Um, so we give them all the, all the resources we have. But in dealing with things like that, we found that you have to hit both sides because you have, when it comes to providers, especially, you have the heartstring folks and you have the data folks. And if you're not hitting on both of those, you're going to lose half. And mm-hmm. so just if you're going to if you're going to do it, host a talk, host a, a conversation where you get to talk about the pros and cons of harm reduction and naloxone. And you'll see a, a, a vast difference in the way people perceive it.
3: A couple comments on um, Rachel, your questions. This is Amy Jepson speaking. Amy is the executive director at Trivium Life Services in Boise. She's also one of the standing panelists for Echo Idaho's Opioids, Pain, and Substance Use Disorders series.
8: So um, when we first started Naloxone, there was a lot of questions in the clinic about our liability, but... With the legislature that's been passed and the way that naloxone can be distributed, you really don't have liability as a clinic anymore. It, you don't. It, it's you're giving it to them. It is their free will and choice whether or not they use it. So when I hear, I, I've heard about that in different parts of the state where people are still hanging their hat on the liability. Um, we I spent quite a bit of time with an attorney. Uh, you. You do not have liability for giving people naloxone. It's the same thing as you don't have liability when you perform CPR. Kind of, it's the same kind of in the same vein. The other thing I have for you, a question for you is, um, so we do naloxone. We haven't really faced a lot of backlash around that. Um, Chloe and I have had several discussions around, can we become a needle exchange program? And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the elephant in the room. People sort of are, more, at least in the Boise area, they're more accepting of naloxone. Um, you know, that's all seen as good practice now. But boy, when you start talking about needle exchange, That is where it's like duck and cover, especially because a lot of our population come from the criminal justice systems. So do you have any thoughts about how do we start addressing the the bias, the stigma that comes along with a needle exchange program?
0: Yeah, I mean I think kind of like what Late Child recovery was talking about like you have to have the the qualitative and the quantitative data to support it right there is so much evidence to support the benefits of harm reduction and syringe service programs right and as a provider you know that your participants are going to continue to use like even if they aren't accessing that or whatever they're they're still Probably likely going to use, or even if they don't, they're probably going to be around people who are using. And so, I, I yeah, I think Narcan naloxone distribution is like the low hanging fruit, it's like the entryway into harm reduction. And so, once you can get people used to you and comfortable with that, which can be a hard sell because of that liability myth, um, that's when you start having those conversations. And then, and then you could also talk about the money saving, right? So, If you're providing sterile injection equipment, that could be preventing the spread of HIV and hepatitis C. Lifelong treatment for HIV or um, clearing a Hep C infection, like those, it's (laughs) a big chunk of money. Um, And so, if you can prevent that with uh, syringes that cost pennies on the dollar, then why wouldn't you want to do that? Um, Or, you know, if that person is reusing a syringe, Causing damage to their soft tissue or veins or whatever, you want to prevent that harm and damage um, and prevent the money that would go toward the ER visit, right? So, I mean, you could talk about the financial benefits, you can talk about the emotional, like, Uh, you know, I, I tout that we have had 150 overdose reversals reported back to us this year, because that's, that's, those are true numbers, right? Those are actual lives saved. So you have to hit the heartstrings, you have to hit the money, you have to hit all those things. Um, And then I think it's important to have like whoever, if it's, if it's a, a doctor who doesn't support it, you have to have a doctor talking to that doctor. If it's law enforcement, you have to have law enforcement talking to law enforcement. I've also struggled, like uh, you know, I, I don't think most people want to hear from a thirty-something-year-old social worker about like this is the best thing to do, right? I'm not the best messenger for a lot of uh, populations, and so I recognize that, and that's why we have to find our champions in these different areas. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think it's, um, you know, there's no one size fits all. There's no quick solution. I think it's a gradual over time. Like I said, harm reduction is new to Idaho. It's, you know, syringe services have been legalized here for two years now, but there's just a lot of work that needs to be done to lay the groundwork and supporting these services. Um, Annie Hawkins up here in the Clark Fork Hope area. Um, You know, it's funny because I don't see any negatives to harm reduction, right?
1: But- when Leita Recovery was speaking, you know, that, that, that subject of harms of harm reduction was mentioned. Is there any evidence-based
0: proof that there are harms with harm reduction? Not that I know of. I think it's just my argument. What I like to say is like, I've never injected drugs in my life. I am constantly surrounded by hundreds of thousands of syringes and I still have never injected a single drug, right? Like it's not the presence of a needle that would cause someone to inject drugs, right? It's, It's a different underlying thing. On the surface, it looks like it's facilitating and encouraging. But in reality, uh, we recognize that people are going to use drugs, whether they have sterile equipment or not. Um, And so we're just trying to facilitate the safer use. Go ahead, Ian. Sorry.
9: I, I'm not familiar with any like evidence-based problem with syringe exchange or um, harm reduction in general. There are some other theoretical things that haven't been borne out in evidence as far as like, if you're providing syringes, is that increasing the number of people who might inject overall and therefore increase the higher lethality mode of administration versus smoking or snorting if someone doesn't have a syringe available, or are you going to increase like injection site? you know, reactions or infections or some some other weird thing um, by providing syringes to a drug-using community. Hasn't been borne out in the evidence. Theoretical risk. The science is clear. It's just the, the social bits that are hard.
10: I want to jump in a little bit here just to kind of reiterate and and um, confirm the importance of all of this. Um,
3: this is Dr. Jacob Harris speaking, psychiatrist and addiction medicine specialist at the Boise VA Medical Center. Dr. Harris is one of the standing panelists for Echo Idaho's Opioids, Pain, and Substance Use Disorders
10: series. When Whenever I'm talking about these things, the, the way I mention it to people who are clearly concerned about it is I'll, I'll show the evidence, for example, of the clinics that are set up for safe administration. And, and I'll, I'll admit... To them, my own biases of like, yeah, my first thought is, whoa, I don't wanna do that. And then when I look into it more, I, I realize that the data does show these people not only are they not using in unsafe situations, but they are also more likely to then engage in treatment services when they are ready. And then when I remind myself of that, my biases can then kind of fall to the wayside and I can say, yes, this is actually the appropriate thing to do. Um, So I I think that uh, that approach of kind of going from the evidence side, going from the personal side, going from all the different angles is, is the right thing to do. And I just really appreciate that this is going on in Idaho.
0: Any other questions or insights from anyone
9: I um, I had a quick question about uh, the Idaho law regarding um, naloxone use. So it says, um, with notwithstanding another provision of law, any health professional licensed or registered under this title, acting in good faith and exercising reasonable care, may prescribe and dispense an opioid antagonist. Um, and that's under Title 54 of Idaho law, so it's like basically... Every single health professional, like registered nurses, social workers, so that just to be clear, as far as everyone knows, is that like mean that basically any person, even without prescriptive authority, can technically prescribe the substance in Idaho, as long as they're a health professional licensed or registered in Idaho.
6: That is correct, Ian. Um, but that kind of leads to a discussion that a lot of healthcare professionals don't realize that they fall into that right with that law that you just read um we surveyed just at isu the health professions and many of them didn't know that they could do something like that and you're right especially for non-prescription writing um health professionals that's an issue right um I guess I would say you can always send them to the pharmacist, right? Because pharmacists can do all that. They can dispense it. They can write that prescription, no prescription needed. So pharmacists fall into that as well. But it is, uh, uh, I think, a piece of education that's lacking for a lot of those professionals
0: you are um, an educator, if you work with the next generation of pharmacists or doctors or social workers, uh, we'd be happy to come in and talk to you all about working with people who use drugs and talking about Narcan and Naloxone. Um, so please reach out. We we really need to have providers that are kind and compassionate towards people who use drugs. I've uh, interviewed someone a couple months ago who, uh, you know, she was a uh, she was a provider, a student, someone who had just graduated. And uh, I asked her what her experience was working with people who use drugs. And she said she didn't have any. And I, and I told her, you do, um, you might not think you have worked with people who use drugs, but if you have been serving people, you have been serving people who use drugs. So um, I think we just need to be asking the right questions and feel comfortable talking to our patients and participants about their, their drug use. Um, because like I said, it's everywhere and most people know people who use drugs. Rachel, can I give, can I ask you to give us the last word? I know you have a lot of experience in this area and I'd, I'd love to have you give us a send off.
7: Yeah, thanks, Lachelle. So I'm the sexual and reproductive health program manager with the Idaho Harm Reduction Project. Um, but I also do a lot of the help with our outreach events where we're going downtown with mutual aid and doing some distribution. At IHARP, we're not working with people clinically or therapeutically. We're not, we don't have the background information of what is this person's diagnosis, what is their trauma history. Um, and I think to just sort of like reiterate the point that we're not working with people clinically in that capacity but also neither are other professionals that we really are like the point of connection for a lot of the folks that we are providing services for because they aren't folks that are consistently keeping appointments to go to therapy or accessing medical care because there's the stigma associated with their use. Um, And I think that harm reduction can be a great place for people to be connected, but that harm reduction is also a really great model that can be integrated into really any level of clinical care um, around using drugs, around any kind of behaviors that could potentially be problematic or harmful for people. Um, I wish that we had probably more people on the call who aren't as well versed in working with people who use drugs, because I think that a lot of times providers hear that someone is using and immediately want to sort of back off and say, I can't work with you because I don't know how to work with substance use. And if we had more providers and more professionals trained in working with people from a harm reduction model, I think that it could continue to have people connected to care in ways that are more meaningful and impactful for them.
3: That was Rachel Bazette from the Idaho Harm Reduction Project. The director and co-founder of the Idaho Harm Reduction Project, Marjorie Wilson, gave this presentation about syringe exchange resources to echo Idaho's opioids, pain, and substance use disorders series on June 10th, 2021. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of those presentations, those videos are currently available on the Echo Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. PowerPoint slide decks that accompanied those presentations are also available on our website, www.uidaho.edu slash echo. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu slash echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible by V Corp, the Valley County Opioid Response Project. We here at ECHO also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions, and invite you to email us at And don't- That's about all the time we have for today, but join us next time when we'll be checking in again with Ladessa Foster of BPA Health, hearing some more information about how to navigate the substance use disorder treatment Why healthcare systems. Data. That's coming up next time on Something Can't for the, the Pain. Until then, Idaho, take the care of yourself.
4: We know the ruralest of places where the resources are scarce, they're calling Echo Idaho in an answer to our prayers.
3: Something for the Pain is made possible by grant number GA1RH39585 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDI one or HRSA. The voices you heard at the beginning of the episode were those of Courtney Boyce, Ian Trasoyer, Marjorie Wilson, and Amber Peace, respectively. Big thanks also to the other contributing voices on today's episode, Todd Palmer, Lashelle Smith, Camille Evans, Randy Pedersen, Kathy Oliphant, Megan Gomeza, Rachel Bazette, Amy Jepson, Annie Hawkins, and Jacob Harris. We'd also like to thank the other members of our Opioids, Pain, and Substance Use Disorder panel, Brenda Hoyt and Richard Runyon. And a big thanks to all of our listeners without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Michelle Smith is the Echo Idaho program director, Katie Palmer is our assistant director, our program managers are Carly Klein and Lindsey Winters Jewel, our marketing manager is Lindsey Lotus, our program coordinators are Kayla Blades, Jessica Whitlock and Sam Steffen.